Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I am with uh, uh, Elliot Hulse. Uh, Elliot, you live in a fairly warm climate. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, Florida is fairly warm climate. Fairly warm climate. So for those of you who are listening in the, in the audio, uh, other than the accent uh, and, and so on, and the youth uh, and the biceps, uh, I am the less um, tanned one, uh, I guess you could say, or as I'm also known as the giant ping pong ball with a beard. So Elliot, good to chat with you. I know we've done a show before and uh, I've always found your your videos and work to be very inspiring. Uh, and I won't actually take off my shirt because I wouldn't want people to know just how inspiring it has or has not been. Uh-huh. But um, you've uh, taken a bit of a turn, I guess. Uh, recently, you had over a million subscribers on YouTube and you went ghost. You uh, you beamed up. So what's uh, what's going on? Uh, you know, I don't think it's anything more than the natural progress of personal evolution. And uh, and one of the things that I discovered is that you need containment. At least I did containment for this type of uh, process to happen. You know, uh, if we're constantly in front of people, we're constantly getting feedback. We're, we're, our identity our identity becomes so. Uh, intrinsically linked to the feedback that we're getting from people, you know, the, the mirror that we're constantly standing in front of, that it's very difficult to reflect internally. So more than anything, of course, I could give you stories and whatnot, but more than anything, it's just been a time for me to go inside and uh, grow so that when I do come back, I have something brand new to present to the mirror or camera, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I certainly understand that there is, of course, when you're a public facing figure, uh, it's easy to become outer or other directed, particularly if you're focused on motivating people, which is, of course, a big part of what you do. It's very easy to get focused on the effect that you're having on others and the feedback you're getting from others, which kind of, I think, bleeds dry the source of your motivation, which is a sort of personal confidence and personal dedication. So uh, I can certainly understand that was sounds like at least according to your blog, it was a pretty tough decision to make to step back because you had like crazy, you know, ferrets on double espressos, camera never goes off kind of output for a while there. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I, I often think about how, uh, you know, of course, there are movie stars, they're in front of the camera and, and even TV stars are in front of the camera. But the thing is, with, with YouTube, as you know, we're in front of the camera multiple times a week. And it's not like, at least it isn't for me, I'm not sure how it is for you. It's not like, well, you know, I recorded these last year. And now they're making their way into the, the public. It's like, no, I film it and upload it right away. Right. So it's almost like your enti- my entire life is – and I'm pretty transparent also. You know, I, I talk about things as they relate to, uh, you know, intimate details of my life uh, are constantly you know, on display so, I mean, did it, did it get, um, did you sort of feel a certain vulnerability with the public exposure and sort of talking about your life? Well, here's the thing. I didn't know. I started to lose myself, you know, and, and if you're, if you're an educator and an uplifter and, uh, you know, someone who's helping people become stronger versions of themselves, but you haven't taken the time to educate and grow yourself, which is basically what it's become too, because, you know, not only do I put myself in front of the camera to educate my students, but also I have a family. So I have four children. I've got my wife. I I run a gym. So what I really had to do is I had to to cut myself off, isolate myself from the activities of my daily 
life, which I think most people are able to do, you know, by going home and reading or taking a walk, which I kind of was not getting much of. I wasn't getting enough quiet time, solitude, really. That's what I needed to nourish myself this way. So I, I, I removed myself. My office is now in, uh, down the block. It's not at the gym any longer. So I'm not constantly bombarded with people and ideas that kind of infiltrate, you know, your environment. You, you think you're thinking for yourself, but the environment is constantly meddling with your with your processes. So I really just needed quiet time, quiet space and reflection and you know that's what that's what this the past 3 months has actually been and I feel so much better. In fact, uh my my position from which I will proceed come you know when I start making videos once again has shifted because I have shifted. I've given myself the shift from motivator, inspirer is really the way I would describe it if you if you consider different personality types. It inspirer to more of an educator or solidifier, you see. So there's a difference between getting people excited you know, at the visceral level, but then also giving them a method, solidifying that new feeling in your body and, and allowing it to make something tangible happen um, is, the, is the next step. And I really just needed to mature. I needed to grow myself. I needed to create my own processes. I needed to create my own forms of discipline and go through my own initiation so that when I do come back, I, you know, I'm a better teacher. I'm a better coach. Yeah, you don't want to be a nutritionist who has no time to eat well uh, because <laughs> you're just burning you a candle at both ends. Now, I mean, you have uh, obviously had a lot of drive and ambition from day one, and you've achieved a lot of what you want. And, um, of course, when you look around, I'm sure that you see a lot of men and women who have – all the potential that nature gives us, which is vastly more than what most people can even imagine. What do you think is the biggest barrier? What, what do you think are the steps that, that layer this wall between people and the achievement of their dreams? What's the one thing or two things that you'd like to pull away from people's view of themselves and their potential to have them uh, really reach the stratosphere that I think nature intends them to? It really boils down to the most fundamental question that I believe a human being asks himself. You know, we're all motivated. I know that motivation was a topic for our discussion. Um, and, you know, you might say that some people are motivated, but some people are not. But in fact, we're all motivated. We're, 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 there's always a motive to our actions and our ambitions. But the real question comes, boils down to, do you believe yourself to be and the world to be Good inherently or bad, evil inherently, inherently evil or inherently good. And I think that the, the decisions that you're going to make that are going to propel you into your future are going to come from that root question, that root issue. Right. So, I mean, to take an extreme example, if the only place you could be advanced was up the ranks of Nazism – then you might not want to be ambitious, you know, I, because if, if you believe that the world is evil, then the achievement of prominence or success would kind of be moving up in the firmament of wrongdoing. Whereas if you believe that the world at least has the potential for virtue, then you can expend and expand your powers in the service of making the world a better place. So that's very interesting. I've never really thought of it quite that way. Did you vacillate in those perspectives when you were younger? Do you vacillate now? No, I actually, here's, here's the thing. Um, 
fear is really the, when you decide that the world is evil and that you're evil, fear is where you're proceeding from. And you can never feel good when you're proceeding out of fear. Even if you do achieve lofty heights, you see, you could have billions of dollars, you could have all types of power. But if you've done this, if you've achieved all of this out of this, out of fear, then you're not really going to, you're really not going to enjoy and embody that which should be pleasurable based on your circumstances, you know, even if you didn't hurt anyone, but if you did it out of fear. So there are a lot of people who have careers that are in the helping profession, you know, doctors and whatnot. But you're a doctor because you feared not living up the, to the legacy of your father and your grandfather who were both doctors you see so you might be you're not a nazi you're helping people you're giving uh, healing to people and in whatever way shape or form you do in your medical niche but you're there because of a root fear so even if you are doing good you're 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 still going to be torn up on the inside there's still a, a disconnect with who you are as a kid i you know i was kind of fearless i i was the one who would they say they would say elliot throw the firecracker or or elliot go ring the doorbell or so very rarely did things scare me. And I think I kind of proceed in the same way as an adult, you know, where most people wouldn't take risks, the risks that I do. Um, I kind of turn a blind eye or just I, I tend to think that things are always going to work out well for me. I think that's really it. You know, I've, I guess I brainwashed myself into to a place where I always think it's going to work out best. So I take the action anyway. I think that the world is good. I think God is good. The universe is good. I, I know that I have pure good intentions. So I just run with it, and, and, and it always seems to work out. Okay, so the devil's advocate position might be that if you were born without the fear muscle, then do you think there's a risk that you're trying to train people into doing something that comes naturally to you? Like, for instance, uh, if if I was born with like the most amazing singing voice and just saying to people, well, look, everyone can sing. It's like, well, no, you just happen to have that physical. Like if you were born without that or have less of that, do you think that it's transferable? And or do you think that um, uh, that uh, people can achieve the kind of fearlessness that you seem to have had innately? This is my attempt. This is what I hope to do because, you know, my videos up until this point have just been a projection of a of a courageous person, you know, and, I, and I'm not putting myself on a pedestal. But like I yell about things that I've I talk about things that I've experienced that have gotten me a certain level of success or influence that a lot of people would want. And uh, and I just I discuss the typical fears that my clients, my personal clients would have uh, on camera. In other words, you know, I typically see people who are afraid of A, B and C. And here's why that's a, a completely false fear and why that. So speaking about it is great. It's very easy for you to say, Elliot, sometimes people would say, because look at you, you did it. But uh, the other end of the coin would be, OK, great. I got you excited about these ideas and, I, and I've caused people to take some pretty drastic actions in their life uh, based on the inspiration that I've offered. But I think where I've lacked up until this point, what I hope to be able to present is a is a coherent system. Not to say that it's guaranteed to get you what I've got, but so that you can reflect on your core values so that we can bring the shadow to light, those things that you're most fearful of, so that we can examine them, so that we can even integrate these things that you fear or the shadow aspects of your, your character and personality into your – that energy will give you power to move towards your 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 dream. If you start out with fear, and fear is a is a – is a shadow, it, it, it's, it, it's a split off part of your consciousness. You know, say, for example, you're afraid to speak up 
You know, I'm one of those people that, you know, my parents were, when I was small, they, they told me, sit down and shut up a lot. And, you know, zip your mouth. And I go to school and they say, zip my mouth. So, you know, you kind of proceed in life as a quiet person. You think you're a quiet person, but really, your inability to create boundaries, your inability to go out there and assert yourself, or your ability to be aggressive when it's, when it's needed, all then becomes a detriment to your advancement. You see, so by bringing that to the to light, we can discuss it. But also, I have a tendency to believe that those things that were once split off and was shadow material can actually be integrated into a new version of who we're becoming uh, for a number of reasons. But of for, but one in particular is because guess what? Now you have an experience of overcoming a challenge that you can offer to other people and be inspiration, be an inspiration to them. So you become a a, a greater gift to the world. I think that's very nobly spoken. And um, even if you're born with wings, if other people have the capacity to grow them, your example may shake their complacency. One of the things I've been curious about in, in looking at your work is the degree to which, I mean, speaking personally, when I started doing a show on philosophy, um, I sort of was, you know, well, I'll speak the truth and I'll try and put arguments forward and, and make the case and, and speak about my own pursuit of truth and the, the pluses and minuses. And I, I knew that some of what I was talking about was going to be radical or startling to people, but I never really thought that anything that I did would be that radical or startling uh, as a whole. You know, just hey, in the pursuit of truth, here's what I have found, here's what I've discovered, here's what I think I've established – but there's a funny kind of thing, and I don't know if you've run into it. I suspect that you have. There's a funny kind of thing where if you speak the truth to people, you think that it's a one-on-one relationship. Like you speak to someone, you say, here's, here's the truth as I see it. Here's the truth that I can establish. And they, you know, they accept it or, or they reject it or whatever. But there's a third party in the room. And that third party is like the structure of society as a whole, right? So why are so many people? scared? Why are so many people ground down? Why do they not feel that life is a grand adventure that they can ride into the sunset? Why are they afraid? Why don't they have a voice? And you think, I mean, when I started, I thought, okay, it's a one-on-one thing. Ah, help people get a voice and, and so on. But you run into this third party called a social structure, right? And I mean, 85 people have more wealth in the world than the bottom three billion people. There's a structure in society that profits from keeping people small. And I don't want to get into all the economics and politics because I think everybody knows kind of that there's something out there, that they are the way they are, not just because of their family or not just because, but because of the whole uh, structure that they live in, whether that's a nation or, or perhaps a religion or a culture, that there's a structure that profits from people being small and scared. And it's always sort of struck me like if you're a farmer and you can convince the cows to attack each other if they wander off the field, you don't have to invest in electric fences. Like if you can get the cows to attack each other or get the slaves to attack each other, you don't need to worry that much about paying all that money to enclose them. And I'm just wondering, I'm so long ramble and all that, but I'm just wondering if when you've done the work that you've done and reached so many people and changed so many people's lives, when they change and when they grow – it's always struck me, or at least it has over the last few years, that they bump into a structure, that they threaten more than just their own fears or maybe even their own personal relationships. But there's a larger structure in society that enormously profits from people not questioning authority, from not living large, from not being good, and from not being big. This, this, I don't know if I'm <laughs> making any sense, but yeah. 
Like I totally dig everything you're saying, and um, and there was a long time there, several years. Where I, let me tell you an interesting story. I'm a little bit woo woo, you know, kind of a hippie. So oh, I, I know. I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I'm coming in prepared, baby. I know. I'm waiting for the incense <laughs> to start curling up. And anyway, go on. Yeah, I got incense burning. Um, so I hired a I hired a coach uh, about a year ago. Uh, he calls him. He 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 works with a lot of the um, ideas of David Hawking's. And uh, and he gives a, a grade score up to a thousand to levels of consciousness and var- to a person, and then in various areas of their life. So you get a score. So like for example, a Buddha or a Jesus would be like a thousand, as far as uh, you know that an overall level of consciousness is concerned. And then you know maybe someone you know who's mentally ill maybe has like a ten. So there are multiple different areas. That you can have the, have your level of consciousness tested, and, and you're, you know the, if you find out that you're low in certain areas, it's a good idea to then take a look at that and decide how you're going to proceed in life so that you can advance because you're ignorant. It's a level of ignorance that you might be, uh, or blindness that you might be proceeding out of. So um, he, he he tested me in nine different areas, one of which that stuck out immediately was relationships, and uh, and we went to relationships and the relationships that area that there were nine more different subcategories in relationships. And uh, it was interesting because I had my highest level of consciousness as well as my lowest. I had one area where I was like enlightened and one area where I was completely ignorant, just like stupid. So the area that that I I scored with high consciousness was long-term committed relationships. Well, that makes perfect sense. I married my high school girlfriend and uh, and, and I'm good with having long-term friendships and whatnot. The area in which I showed up as basically ignorant, just a buffoon, and, and needed severe work, or at least attention, was my relationship to institutions. <laughs> <laughs> so everything you're describing, you know, bumping up against resistance, to me, all I could focus on is the resistance of institutions. You know, be it government, be it school, be it parents in the home. I was always just rebellious. I mean, anytime I feel like a limit to my power or to my um, freedom, I feel stifled in right away and I want to fight back. This is just my natural, uh, my way, you know, based on the experiences of my uh, childhood as well as what I I wanted to bring up as you were speaking. Um, have you ever studied the work of Bruce Lipton in epigenetics? Well, you know, epigenetics, long- yes, but not Bruce Lipton in particular. Okay, so I read his books, but so you're familiar with the idea that the environment affects the DNA, you know, affects the cell. So we're in more ways than one, we're affected by our environment, perhaps even more so than we are our our genetic heritage, if you will, according to some of these ideas. Anyway, at least that's what I got from it. or, Or at the very least, that's what we should focus on, because that's the only thing we can control. Better way right. to put There's it. no environment that's going to turn me into, um, I don't know, an aboriginal uh, uh, from uh, Australia. But there is, uh, in terms of my DNA, we really should always try and, and, and focus on that which we can change. Because trying to focus on that which we can't change is just a great way to grind yourself into a futile dust to be scattered to the wind of history with no visibility. So, yeah, as far as epigenetics go, it's not the whole story, but it's really the only story that matters, in yeah. my opinion. Right. So, so the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that our parents tell themselves when they're, you know, when you're pregnant, when your mother's pregnant with you, according to similar ideas, you know, the way your mother is treated, the, the, her fears, her hopes, her dreams, all sort of make their way into the baby. 
You know, so if your mother was a Holocaust survivor, the child will carry the remnants of pain and fear associated with the events that uh, the mother experienced while the child was in utero. And they even have science to, to, to back up how the brain is actually formed based on the experiences of the mother. mother. And, the, and, the, and one of the things I actually do remember is that if, she, if the HPA access, access is, is highly stimulated, there's a lot of stress, she's really releasing a lot of stress hormones while she's pregnant with you, the brain of the child actually develops in such a way that the hind brain, the back brain, the reactive brain, the, the, the reptilian brain gets bigger and the front brain, that part of the brain that has more of our cognition and our ability to see objectively and whatnot and take our time, shrinks. So when we're dealing with a, a population like we are, and you and I assert ourselves as teachers, you know, we have, there's something inside us that we feel might be valuable for people to hear. We've got to realize that we're dealing with, you, you, you know, the collective unconscious, if you will, as, as Jung would put, put it, you know, generations and generations of experiences and ideas that make themselves present and manifest in our current reality. So all we can really do is say, like, look, we're dealing with people at various levels of consciousness. We're dealing with, with people um, with various access to ideas. Now, of course, more so than ever, we have access to, to tremendous amounts of ideas. So all we can really do is, uh, and I say this like all we can really do, but we're doing such a tremendous job of, at it. We're doing it faster and bigger and, and more prolifically than we've ever done it in the history of humankind, I, which is the sharing of ideas. I mean, I think about the American Revolution and how, you know, Thomas Paine, with the, he had to print all those uh, copies of common sense and get them on horseback. And they had to go up and down the, 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 the East coast of the United States to distribute this to people who probably couldn't even read. So one person who had to show up and read it to everyone in a town square where today, you know, we walk around with these things. And if I have an idea, I, I, I say it to the camera and within hours, a uh, hundred thousand people see it. So we're doing a tremendous job of being a positive vibration in the in the immense amount of vibration that's going out in this day and age. So I'm grateful for, I'm happy for whatever positive vibration I could put out while I'm here. And uh, and I don't feel like I have to change things so physically. I used to think like I had to create revolution and tear down governments and ideas and I want to be a rallier and a fighter. And I found too much energy was being exerted against the things I don't want as opposed to doing the things that contribute to what I do want, which is to further co raise consciousness. Right, right. I mean, I, I think <clears throat> what, what you're talking about in the womb, I think, is fairly well established. And uh, there's even some very strong cases to be made that, that significant stressors in the mother at a certain period of the child's development have a strong influence on homosexuality versus heterosexuality, which I think is, is fascinating. Because when we're in the womb, our bodies are scanning for the environment. They're saying, are we in an environment of competition or cooperation? In other words, are we going to be hitting over, hitting each other over the head to get the bananas? Or are we going to be trading, I've got an apple, you've got a banana, whatever, right? We're going to, are we in a situation of trade and reason and cooperation? Or are we in a warrior, hierarchical, win-lose environment? And I, I think the body, like our body, when it develops, it says, well, if there's a lot of stress from the mom, 
it must be a combat environment. It must be a win-lose environment. And that's what our brains get ready for. That way we get more temper, we get more aggression, and we get fewer inhibitions in the neofrontal cortex. So our impulses, because if you're in a combat situation, you don't want to be overthinking things. You want to just be instinctive. So we are and, – and so I think people who are trying to enlighten the world, we literally are opening the robot and changing the wires, which is a really wild thing to be doing. And and there are all of these theories from the past, like, you know, Marxism and fascism and so on that said, well, if you change the politics or you change the economics or you change whatever, right, who owns the means of production, then you'll get different human beings. That's not true. You get different human beings when you have people using epigenetics adapt to peace when they are wired for war. And that takes a huge amount of intellectual effort. I'm a big fan of talk therapy and so on and, and constantly telling people, go to therapy, go to therapy, because going to therapy rewires, I believe, your brain and your epigenetics from war to peace. And that so much of war is built into our neonatal, our postnatal, our childhood experiences. You have to – and you can't go back and change people's childhoods, but you can – have them work on cooperation rather than aggression, which really feels weird to people who are wired for war. And yeah. uh, it, it is a, you know, I, again, I thought, well, I'm just putting words out and the words will have an effect on people and they may listen or they may not. But the more I learned about it, the more experts I had on the show, the more it's a, and it's what you're talking about, what you're doing now. We are going down not to the essence of definitions of virtue. We're going down not to philosophy we're actually going down to dna and there's yes. nothing deeper i mean unless we can find the subatomic particles then we'll have to go even deeper than dna but we're going down to dna and we're saying to people you can change your wiring it hurts <laughs> like hell but we're trying to rewire the because once that rewiring is done i mean absent some giant comet hitting the damn planet we'll be set forever because yeah. You know, war begets war and peace begets peace. And if we can rewire people to peace, to reason, to negotiation, rather than to aggression and win-lose, that is going to perpetuate and escalate. But boy, oh boy, does that ever threaten the structure of a society which has largely developed out of aggression and, and win-lose interactions. And that, that, like, we're attempting to basically, we're like Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein. We're trying to change the species at the DNA level. Through words. I mean, it's really a wild thing when you think about it. I just wanted to – so I, I, I just passed 100 million downloads. So, uh, you know, we've got a lot of uh, DNA uh, stuff, uh, DNA-changing yeah. stuff that's out there. Yeah, I don't, There wasn't even a question in that, so I'm sorry about that. But I just wanted to sort of share the thoughts about the depth because you, you're exciting. talking about your deep dive. This is what you're working on, right? Yeah, it's really exciting, and you're and you're spot on. We're we're changing people not just through ideas, but we're changing their bodies. And uh, and the, and I've been in therapy. I was in therapy for three years, and you know I come and go. I work with various mentors, and one of the things that puts me in a unique position is my understanding understanding of exercise physiology and movement. And uh, and what's also incredible is that we can not only just uh, change people's DNA by changing their thoughts, because obviously the physiology responds differently to the environment if you tend to believe that you live in a good world as opposed to a, a threatening world like you described. But we can also work at the physiological level by helping people breathe better, by reducing muscular tension in key areas of the body that affect the brain. So stretching, breathing, exercise modalities like yoga, and uh, and intuitive stretching are really in, are really important in changing 
what I believe to be the whole brain because our body is 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 linked to the brain. There, there really is no delineation except for the stories that we've told ourselves about where our brain is. My brain extends way down into my body through the spinal cord and it wraps around my organs and viscera and muscles through various vortexes. And if I'm going to change my thinking, I can't just do it in an abstract way with new stories, new images. I also need to stand differently. I need to breathe differently. I need to carry myself differently. My body should begin to feel differently so that I'm a completely different organism. Well, I think that's true. And, and certainly in Western philosophy, I mean, it's very boringly called the mind-body dichotomy. And it comes out of a lot of um, uh, Judeo-Christian mythology uh, insofar as there's this soul that is completely independent of the body, which is the seat of your consciousness. In other words, the body is like just this cart that carries yeah. your, your soul around and there's no particular relationship to it. Like, uh, you know, in the old AV days when they did big tube TVs, there were always the AV guys who wheeled the TVs around the high school and so on. And the TV was totally different. It was just a vehicle. And that's the way that, that people viewed the brain throughout a lot of Western philosophy. And the whole purpose, of course, in, in a lot of religions is to escape the body, which is the seat of sin, which fails, which is the province of the devil. And there's this antagonism between consciousness and the body. And I mean, I grew up with a lot of that stuff. I grew up uh, in, in England and was uh, in, in Protestant church and so on, which is not quite as bad as Catholicism in its negativity towards the body. But your body is basically this distasteful and smelly cab that you have to use to get from birth to death. And uh, what I found was for me, when I started getting into exercise as a teen, and I did a lot of I did like water polo and swimming and cross-country running and, and all kinds of tennis and squash and lots of sports, that helped a lot. Just sort of get – because then when you are working with the body, the speed at which you need to work precludes over-analysis. You know, like if you're trying to get a squash uh, ball in the corner, you can't mull it over. You have to be very instinctive. So I think it helps wire the brain to instantaneousness as much as possible with the body. And then when I went to theater school, I did two years of the Alexander movement, which is a very sort of posture intensive, get you back to when you're a kid kind of stuff. Uh, I've done years of yoga and stretching and dance. Anyway, but I did all of this stuff. so intelligent. And that's that's a very strange thing for a guy who grew up in England. Like, as in England, I mean, your body is uh, pale and gap-toothed <laughs> and, and unpleasantly smelly. Uh, and, and so I think it's a good combination of sort of Western philosophy and what a lot of the East teaches about the mind-body connection. I just right. kind of lucked into through a variety of, of things. And I think that's given me a lot of um, – uh, strength in terms of uh, staying rooted in the body while disseminating the most abstract ideas. Because a lot of people who do the abstract, I think it's sort of Christopher Hitchens, who was a you know brilliant writer, brilliant speaker, great polemicist, who smoked and drank himself into an early grave. And I can't imagine Christopher Hitchens in a yoga class uh, <laughs> in, in any way, uh, shape or form. Yeah. And so I think that the body work is vastly, the value of body work is vastly underestimated. And people yeah. wait till it's broken and then try to fix it, which I think is, right. is a real mess. Yeah, if you wait till your body is broke, I can guarantee you that in many ways your life is also broken because the vehicle through which you've been approaching it has been compromised. You're brain damaged if your body damaged. Now, I know that's a, that's a big statement, but really, if you don't have access to the intuition of your body, you got to understand that your body pr 
it does what it does without you having to think about it. Entire autonomic nervous system. They used to call it the vegetative nervous system when I read some of the old books. Basically just does what it does without any effort on your part. There's a tremendous amount of intelligence that is, a, that is available to us if we are in touch with our bodies. You know, yoga and tai chi and qigong and, and, and exercises like that tend to give us access to the language of our heart, the language of our gut, so that it doesn't seem, you know, I, I tell a lot of people, I tell people often, you know, listen to your heart or trust your gut. Well, shit, if my stomach is, is sick from the food that I've eaten, I've got tension in my belly because I'm cutting off my sexuality from, you know, basically the tightness in your belly is sort, sort of acts like it's a corsetting effect against your, you know, between your upper body, you know, the, the, the human part of us and the animal part of us, you know, our balls and our ovaries and whatnot and the intelligence thereof. If you've got a tight belly corsetting or cutting off the intelligence of your sexuality so that it could reach your cognition so that you so you can actually be uh, familiar with much less trust your intuition, your gut, and uh, and your heart, compassion, you know, love for one another, realizing that we are we, we are one thing. If you're up here and this is tight, this is damaged, this is sick, then you've been proceeding in life with with, with as a handicap. Well, it's it's this weird vanity that we have. Our brain is our most expensive organ, and it's the biggest thing that we've got. And of course, it consumes the most water, and like it's crazy just how. Uh, big and, and but it's but the thing is too it's new as hell you know the body goes back millions and millions of years i mean billions if you want to count all the way back the body and it's it's it the way it works and what it does is way older than the brain the brain I, i've sort of called it on a show the the post monkey beta expansion pack i mean <laughs> it's buggy as hell <laughs> Great. But it's really it's it's so distracting because the brain gives us all these cool ideas and the brain can yeah. get involved in puzzles and do all kinds of fun stuff and learn language and and so on and so it's very uh, intoxicating, you know that the brain can be like a a hot and dangerous woman, you know it's very seductive, yeah, but, uh, and it's very distracting from the body, which seems in comparison to what the brain can do, kind of boring. Right. And and I think that that going back to all of the stuff that that has come from us, we only have the brain because the body was successful, right? Right. I mean, like when we when we, we used to be on all fours, and it, it, you know, the reason we have the brain is because the body went, hey, I'm going to stand up, and that exposes less of your body to the sun, which means you have to use less water for cooling, so you can use more water to grow a brain. And our brain brain has grown to the point where, well, you know, this as a dad, right before. Your wife would explode giving birth. She gives birth because the brain grows and you see a baby. They've got these like unbelievably bowling ball heads, you know, on these <laughs> tiny little bodies. And basically the brain grows until, you know, another half inch and it would be like alien rather than a birth. And so the body has has developed everything really beautifully. And then we take this brain that is the outgrowth of the body and only is there because the body, quote, made good decisions. And we go and run with the brain and completely forget about the body. And it's like, yeah. it's like this, like this, this, our best friend takes us to a party and we go chasing someone else and leave our best friend behind. And it's like, but there's a best friend. That's the real relationship, not whoever's at the party. Yeah. So it's just important to remember that the body is why we're here. The body's why we have a brain and ignore it at your significant peril. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's an interesting uh, analogy I like to make. Have, have you seen these fantastic photographs uh, of the of the entire nervous system where they've got the brain and the the entire peripheral nervous system laid out? So I, somebody central, did actually send me that. Yeah, I've seen this. 
Fantastic. And, and it, it's, it's so, it, it reminds me of, and I often use the metaphor to describe a plant. And if you can look at the root system of a plant, you know, it looks just like our peripheral nervous system. Mm. It just, it spines out and wraps around and it creates an environment where it can receive what it needs and give back what it needs. It, it's intelligent in and of itself. But the brain looks so beautiful as a bud. It almost looks like a, a fruit that would come out of a plant. So if you look at the, the human nervous system as you would a plant, you could see that there's a root system and then there's a, a fruit. You got the root and the fruits. What we tend to do is take the is if we were a piece of fruit and we were to say, well, those roots they just hang out in that dirty, nasty dirt down there. We're I'm I'm a piece of beautiful apple. I'm a beautiful apple, shiny. I'm where and the birds build their nests. I'm not yeah. where the worms are. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that that apple to say that the, the, sort of judge put place judgment on and separate himself consciously from the root system. He doesn't exist. The fruit won't exist. It doesn't make any sense. We have to realize and and appreciate and honor our root system. Well, and you know, I I've read some very convincing arguments for me, at least, Elliot, that, you know, everyone talks about peak oil and, and, and so on. I think that the most scarce and necessary resource in the world is empathy. Because if you, if you have empathy for other human beings, that doesn't always mean sympathy. It doesn't always mean that you agree, but you understand where other people are coming from. Empathy and cruelty are opposites. You, you can't do the two together. And, Empathy, I believe, really comes from the body mm. because that's the one thing we share with everyone else. We may have different ideas, different religions, different cultures. But, you know, as Shylock said in A Merchant of Venice, if you prick us as the Jews, do we not bleed? Mm. Right. The body we all have in common. Mm-hmm. And we all go through the same experience of, of growth and, and puberty and maturity and eventual decay and death. I believe that those who are not connected with the body have the greatest trouble with empathy. And so I think that teaching people to get into their bodies helps remind them, as you said, like we're all kind of the same, but not in our thoughts, Mm-mm. but in our bodies. You know, I'm assuming you, like me, have approximately two nipples. And so we we have this commonality through the body. But if you're just an abstract floating head guy or or woman – I think it's really hard because you focus on what's different between yourself and others. You don't focus on the physicality and the body, which we all have in common. And I, I think that part of the body work helps people to to empathize with other people in a way that if you just focus, say, on your religion or your political party or your culture and so on, that's all in the head. And that yeah. doesn't really affect the body that much, but the body we all have in common. And I think that's where a lot of that hands across the divide can come from. Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting that you say that. I recently uh, have been reading some books about traditional Chinese medicine, which, by the way, is a 4,000-year-old a study, you know, and practice. Sorry to interrupt. I got cupped and I got acupuncture. I had a, uh, a problem with my, my back after exercising. I shortened a tendon through, um, through injury. And uh, it worked. I mean, the other, the other stuff, nobody knew what to do. I tried ultrasound and all this Western crap. And uh, although I'm a big fan of Western medicine in some ways, yeah, <laughs> but it was it was the cupping and the, in particular the cupping, which I think just draws a lot of oxygen rich blood to the area and, and does a lot of good work. But, yeah, I, I gave up on and I'd never tried it before. And I went in, got the acupuncture, got the cupping and it worked very well. 
Right. So you, you might be familiar with how uh, different elements are associated with different organs and whatnot throughout the entire body. It's interesting that you, you keep talking, you keep doing this when you refer to ourselves and to compassion or empathy. I'm getting trying and to pay people to focus on my nipples. I'm very proud of them. Sorry, just kidding. Yeah, Go well, ahead. actually, it's kind of our proven a point. Yeah, well, this, the nipples are where we nourish also, right? Where <laughs> the woman true. nourishes. So you're nourishing people every time you do this. Nice. The, the, the lungs. The lungs, the heart, the cardiovascular system, but mainly the lungs and the heart. Um, the, the heart is often used as a metaphor for love. And when you say empathy, compassion, you know, the, people think of the heart and they do this. But it's interesting that the lungs being the organ that, that we use to swim in that which every single one of us swim in. We're surrounded by it. We're nurtured by it. It's inside us and it's outside us. It is truly what links every single one of us to, to, to each other. You know, not the color of our skin, not our national or, origin, not our ideas, but the heart, meaning lungs and oxygen, oxygen, oxygen. Really, that's what it is. Air. Air is what ties us together. The heart is the organ that pumps that which unifies us throughout my body. The lungs is that which brings it in. And guess what? When I do, someone else is going to be breathing at a part of what I took in. You see, we're, we're, we're really, we're like fish in an ocean when it comes to oxygen. And, and, the, and, the, and the lungs are our connection to the environment and to one another. The heart, the heart, lungs, air. And it's we, we share, of course, the oxygen. I mean, it, it connects us with nature, too. I breathe out. The trees yep. breathe in. The trees breathe out. You breathe in. We're all sharing the same molecules, which we don't do with our intellects nearly as much. Now, what are you going to do? I know it's always tough to ask when somebody's in the middle of a big life transition, Ali, but what is uh, what's next, brother? What are you going to be doing coming up? I mean, I can't imagine it's going to be – I think you mentioned once that going camping in Florida, which is insane, but – Given how cold it is up here, I certainly would take it over where we are. You said sitting in a chair for four days. I can't imagine that's going to extend to infinity. But what's going to go on for you next, do you think? Do you have any sort of instincts or intuition about that? Yeah, I do. Um, and, and just to put it plainly, uh, and, and I'll expand upon it in a moment, because I'm, re- I'm reading a book called Rhythmic Integration um, about life path, you know, initiation, evolving. I and mean, we all start at different places based on the experiences that we've had and, um, you know, where we were born and things of that nature. I identified with on this life path, life path journey. There are very different. There are different characters. Um, the Inspirer. And I read the chapter on Inspire and, and it made perfect sense uh, with regard to everything that is great about the Inspire, but everything that makes the Inspire suck. In other words, all the things that make you awesome, but also the things that are going to cause you to crash. And I feel like I totally lived out that phase in its fullness. You know, I did absolutely everything the best way that an Inspirer could, but at the same time, all the things that a typical Inspirer lacks, which is usually a unifying process, uh, uh, something tangible as opposed to just excitement. See, I get so excited and I do so many things that, and, and, I, I, and I have ability to get people excited too that you might want to drop everything right away and follow me. Follow me, everyone. Guess- we'll find out where we're going on the way. <laughs> yes. <Right. laughs> Hope it's not a cliff. Right. In a way, that's what I did. You know, I got really, I get really excited about certain things that I know are powerful that I've used myself, but I have no system. I just say, "Go and do it. Let's go," and we can go and charge off, uh, off to off a bridge. You know, off a off a cliff. 
and everybody would follow. And not to say that everyone's ignorant, but that's a part of my skill is to get you really excited. The, the thing is that the next phase of development, which is is growing out of my my withdrawal, my sabbatical, is the, the solidifier stage. And the solidifier is the one that takes all the influence and all the, the, the passion associated with the inspiration and manifest it into something tangible that can actually bring people through a process to where they are even a bit more evolved than they were when they started. Not just excited, but evolved. Right. Right. Yeah. So knowing where the long term destination is allows you, of course, to use your capacity to motivate others in the best possible way. Um, because as you're exploring, uh, other people who are following may have different paths of exploration, different processes. So not just leading people. <clears throat> this is the great challenge, too. Like I I steadfastly refuse to give people answers in my show mm-hmm. because to give people answers is to deny their capacity. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like you lifting weights for someone. <laughs> like, well, I don't see how that's helping you. I mean, I guess I get a little bit. And so, uh, you know, when people call in, I do these call-in shows like six, seven hours a week. And people call in with questions, problems, and, you know, philosophy and self-knowledge can be helpful with that. I will not give people answers. I just won't right. do it because that is to deny them their capacity to figure things out. And that, of course, when you have the capacity to motivate people as you do – Getting them to self-motivate, not in pursuit of your motivation or being drawn along like a water skier between like <laughs> under your Mercury engines, but to <laughs> transfer that capacity for self-motivation. When you've got a lot of people following you, it can be quite intoxicating and you feel like you're doing them some good. I'm going to say you. I feel like it. But the point I've always sort of made is that I don't want people to follow me. Uh, I want people not to think what I think or to accept what I say, but to use the tools to think for themselves. And I, because you're a naturally enthusiastic and fearless guy, it's very tempting to have people follow in your wake. But finding right. ways to transfer that enthusiasm so that they're as enthusiastic about their lives as you are about yours, that I think is the real is the real challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And no system is foolproof. You know, it's just a matter of creating a, a form of of containment. So that certain ideas about yourself that you never considered, you know, because part of what we do is to motivate, we educate, you know, and educating means enlightening. And, and I don't see it say enlightening like everyone's going to become a, a Bodhi Vista. I mean, enlightening like you're shedding light on stuff that was in the dark. You see, so it's like if I enlighten you, it doesn't mean I turned you into Jesus. And I, it doesn't mean that I'm enlightened, mean that I'm Jesus. It means that there are certain things that were in the dark that we can now bring to our attention. Now it's a matter of integrating these new ex, these new ideas into a into a, a new ego construct how are you going to approach the world now that you know that you're you're scared because your dad used to beat you up well and, that, and that's the reason why you can't speak up to your boss and the reason why even though you're the most competent guy at your job you have the you're the lowest on the totem pole great now you figure that out you know a lot of talk therapy a lot of freudian therapy is is, is centered around well let's discover why you're fucked up I was like, it's great. Well, now we discovered why I fucked up. I'm enlightened. Yes, you're enlightened. There's, there's light shit on it. But now how do I take that information? Like I spoke about before, you know, uh, taking your shadow. And, and Joseph Campbell says eating your shadow. Really what you want to do is get to the point where you can eat your shadow, meaning we don't run away from it. And this is, uh, you know, a big part of our, our Western philosophy and, and, and theology has caused us to say evil, good. So we want good, 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 and then we push away from evil. But as the saying goes, that which you resist persists. It's a matter of 
okay, coming in touch with that shadow aspect, that split off part of my consciousness, looking at it, realizing that there might be some good here, and now a process for integration. And I tell you what, what, what I do find lacking, and it had been in myself personally, and, uh, and I think it's what's lacking in, in the coming generations, is patience with the process. Mm. Because we have so many examples of quote-unquote success, and there are so many different things to be inspired to and motivated by, but I don't think enough talk is given to mastery in that this is a lifelong process. Just because you discovered one shadow aspect of yourself and you're working to integrate it doesn't mean another one's going to not pop up. You know, I think the further you get along, the, 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 obviously the deeper and the more insidious the forms of uh, the shadow forms show up. So we're not going to get somewhere. We're not going to be successful. We're not going to achieve some particular pinnacle. We've got to realize that it's a journey. And some believe this is a journey beyond our death. So look at it this way. We're not getting anywhere. We're not going anywhere. It's going to be a while. Respect that it's going to take patience and it's going to take time for you to become a new version of yourself. Now, you and I spoke maybe uh, two years ago. Um, I would say that over the past 12 months, I have, it's taken me a year to have a breakdown. Basically, when I say breakdown, I mean that when we find that uh, the ego that we're using to proceed in the world no longer works, we either have to decide that it no longer works for who I want to become or the universe, God, the world says, crash, this shit ain't working anymore. And I had a kind of a combination of both. You know, I had to have a breakdown. My ego construct was no longer uh, resourceful for who I wanted to become, but it, it takes, and I'd say I started cracking up <laughs> around January and I, it, I literally like maybe the past month I'm starting to feel like, okay, good. Now I discovered these things about myself. I discovered, I've been enlightened to these different ideas that I never considered. I have all these brand new tools. I have a brand new environment to incubate in now I'm starting to feel like I'm a different version of myself. It's taken me a year, and I move really fast. It's taken me a year to completely break down and then begin reconstructing an ego that's going to allow me to move to the next mount. And, and I have a feeling that when I get to that one, I'll probably have to have a breakdown too, because this is how we consistently evolve. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, my my experience, uh, yeah, you move faster than me. For me, it was about 18 months I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. I just, and, and there was, and, and what, what, the reason I couldn't sleep was I was awake in my life. I was asleep. Sorry. The reason I couldn't sleep was I was asleep in my life. Mm. Uh, I was making a lot of money. Uh, I had a lot of material success. Uh, I was living with a woman. We were going to get married. And I was not awake in my life. I was a machine of productivity and utility to others and, and to myself. And, uh, I had left so many of the things that I wanted to do, like artistic stuff and, and so on behind in order to be an entrepreneur and, and start a company and grow a company and make money and sell the company. And it's that, and at the time too, like for you, when you hit a success point, you think, woohoo, I've made it, baby. It's all <laughs> smooth sailing from now. I can go buy Hawaii if I want and that's going to make me happy. <laughs> And uh, it was at that time of greatest success and, in a sense, greatest security. I mean, I grew up dirt poor. I finally had a couple of bucks. And it was like my body was like, okay, we're not going to sleep until you wake up. And uh, drove me into therapy, and I did years of therapy and uh, turned it around. And it gave me the strength to do what it is that I'm doing now. And 
you know, you have to, I wrote when I was 17 in a poem, you, there are times in life we have to bury ourselves first in order to be resurrected. And you only bury a dead body. And there are times where you've adapted to things for expediency. Right. Absolutely. And then that's not in a sense what the world needs of you. That's not what the future needs of you. We all live in this world that has been made a paradise compared to most of history because <laughs> yeah. people were willing to go against the grain. I mean, the guy who invented the car pissed off all of the people who had horses and carriages and all the guys who shoveled the shit off the horse streets, uh, all the horse shit off the streets in, in towns. Everything that we treasure, everything that we value uh, is is there because someone has gone against the grain. And uh, if you have the capacity to produce good things and in, in, in the world by going against the grain, you should. But it's hard to do that because, you know, we're a, we're a social species. We like to get along. And I wanted to mention just as well that the, the shadow thing, too. Because, again, I don't want to sort of sound like I'm bashing too hard. I'm talking really sort of structured, organized historical religion. But this idea that the devil, the devil is out there somewhere in the ether, in the in the vents, in the pipes, in the clouds, in the de in the dirt, in the lava. It's out there. And you have to smash that devil with self-righteous willpower and allegiance to ghosts and, and all that. That, to me, is incredibly dangerous. I have found in my life, whenever I banish evil to another country, I end up living there. We, yeah. I, that's the eat your shadow thing. Uh, when I was younger, I'd be knowing the power of language that I have, eloquent speech making, quickness of thought and so on. I'm like, I should go to politics. <laughs> I, I wrote a party <laughs> platform. I looked into starting a political party. I was like, I should go into politics. Now, the way I yeah. view that now, it would not have been a very good decision and really would have turned me into some sort of Sith Lord. You know, I might have got my face on a stamp, but... Uh, <laughs> It would have been a destination uh, uh, letter to hell. And recognizing our own capacity to use our skills and abilities for good or for evil. Uh, there's a great scene in, um, oh gosh, The King's Speech, uh, which is, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but it's about the, the, the king in England who prior to the Second World, Second World War couldn't speak. He had a stutter. He couldn't do any public speaking. And he was watching a speech of Hitler's. And he's like, well, everything Hitler says is horrible, but man, does he say it well. Yeah. And, you know, Hitler's capacity for public speaking, boy, if he'd been able to use that for good rather than ill. And I think recognizing our own capacity for um, greed, for harm doing. Uh, I mm -hmm. was certainly wired for combat, and I've done a lot of work over the years to um, rewire myself for peace while still retaining the capacity for necessary combat and the pursuit of virtue. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, – uh, yeah, definitely if we think that evil is always something forever out there that we have to guard against and fight against, um, I think that's actually how it gets in. <laughs> I think that right. lays the garage door wide. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting. I, I had a coaching session with a client a couple months back who spent several years in Afghanistan. And, you know, he had to do some things that he no longer is, uh, he doesn't feel very good about. Mm. He, he, he mentioned some stories where he had to kill people and, and, and some of them innocent even. And uh, he comes back and he's supposed to integrate, reintegrate into American society after having that experience. And uh, he was cracking up. He, he was having a very difficult time. And, uh, you know, when, when I was working with him, I could see where he's tripping over many different parts of the stories and experiences that he's had. And the one, th the one sticking point that I, that I, I couldn't resolve with him because I only had one session with him, but I realized that this is where you're tripping, my man. And, uh, and, and, and I feel empathy towards you. His aggression 
we need aggression. Aggression has been labeled as negative in certain in certain ways, but aggression is a biological function that causes us to move outward when there is something needed. Either defense, you know, and defense is simply by creating boundaries, you know, so, so uh, you, people can't take advantage of you or just so that you can build yourself up in a way without having intruders. It's just a normal thing. Every every creature on earth crawling has boundaries um, and, and aggression, meaning like if there's something you want, you should have be able to shore up the energy to go out and get it. Aggression is a beautiful, beautiful thing that human beings have access to. But when it's misused in the case of, you know, injuring or killing innocent people uh, and you place a judgment upon it. Now what happens is aggression becomes the shadow. Aggression becomes the devil. And uh, and, and at least it did for the, for this young man. And um, and he set such high goals and, and lost the lofty expectations for himself that were completely attainable, but he could not get the ball rolling. He could not make something tangibly happen. And it was simply because, simple and also profound, you've rejected your aggression. You know, and, and whenever we bring up aggression and I would ha- have him act out aggression in various ways, I could see him retreat. His energy immediately re- retreats and he places a judgment. He's like, no, 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 I don't want to be that way. All I'm asking you to do is to, is to shout and to, and to pump your fist. You know, I'm trying to get him excited to or physically use because the body is the mind in this way. Physically use your body to embody aggression so that when you have to, the opportunity to use it, you feel empowered. But um, every time I got him to act it out, all I would recognize is a retreat and a judgment. I don't like that part of myself. I don't want to do it. And um, I can't judge it because he, he's had his, his experiences. But um, but if he were to be able to eat the shadow experience, so if he were to integrate that instead of judging it and pushing away from it, the man would be far more powerful. Well, of course, um, getting involved in unjust military conflicts uh, uh, could easily be said as a lack of aggression early on, right? A lack of evaluation. Uh, in other words, he ended up with displaced and destructive aggression because of a lack of boundaries and pushing back and a lack of skepticism and a lack of resistance to authority and conformity and culture and his family, perhaps, who was like, yay, soldiers, uh, and and the indoctrination of his school and maybe even of his church. Because there was a lack of aggression early on, you end up being exploitable, and then you become afraid of the very aggression that could have actually prevented you from getting into that bloody blah. Anyway, yeah, that's... Yeah, you've been a lot deeper. That's it. Yeah, it starts... Aggression and uh, and I would even go as far as to say masculinity and you know we could we could argue in various ways for femininity also but um, our sexuality that's a better way to put it our sexuality our the full expression of our sexuality has become shadow material you know the, the masculinity in its association with aggression you know we're the aggressive. Uh, typically the the aggressive sex meaning you know we've got a body that's made to go out and do things and to defend so we sort of lean in that direction a little bit more has been so uh denigrated and and the speech against it and there are even movements against masculinity as if all masculinity is is shadow aggression or patriarchy that um that we lose ourselves by judging the, the penis to be something uh, evil and aggressive and in a shadow way well <laughs> I mean, uh, that's a big topic too. So, I mean, but to me, it's always been, hey, do you like civilization? Thank a penis. Because mm-hmm. the reason we've gone out as men and built a civilization 
is to right. make women and children comfortable. I mean, <laughs> do, do you like having a roof over your head and air conditioning and a car? Thank a penis. Spend a day <laughs> thanking a penis. Kneeling while thanking a penis can also be helpful, but that's another story entirely. But no, this this demonization of male sexuality where, you know, if a man reads pornography, he's gross, he's a pervert. If a woman reads gross pornography like Fifty Shades of Grey, she's just exploring <laughs> her own blah 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 right? And and yeah, uh, yeah the, the whole question of the demonization of male sexuality, which has been going on since the dawn of time. I mean, this, this idea that male sexuality is somehow innately uh, violent and exploitive and so on, whereas female sexuality is wonderful and, you know, lyrical and blah, 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 uh, to me is just unbelievable uh, sexism. Uh, and if it were applied to women in any other field, like if we were to say, well, men's contribution to science has always been wonderful and women's contribution to science has always been to drag it back and make it bad. I mean, people would be like, oh, my God, that's sexist. And the idea that we can have the projection of sexual dysfunction all onto the uh, animus, uh, all onto the male, uh, it puts a huge and heavy burden. And I think it's one of the reasons why so many men are opting out, are, are galting, are getting out of relationships. The MGTOW movement, the men's rights movement, the anti-marriage movement, the anti-dating movement. I think that the, the projection of all of the dysfunction, which women are part of, uh, women do a lot of raising of children, and if man turns out dysfunctional, it's not entirely unrelated to women. I'm not saying it's all the woman's fault, but women are part of the cycle of violence, as I've talked about um, in, in many times before. And But all of the dysfunction that results from both the male and female dysfunction all gets projected onto the man and is driving the man out of society and is driving the man out of his productive capacity to make the world a better place, which is very important for women and children. And so I, I really push very hard back against this. You know, there was this, this guy who landed a comet, who landed a spaceship on a comet. You probably saw this. He, he, I mean, oh my God. I mean, I'm, I have trouble backing into a parking space for God's <laughs> sakes. And this guy lands a spaceship on a comet and he wore this shirt that had some pictures of, of scantily clad women on it, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> and it was actually given to him by a female friend who was a feminist and this and that and the other. And women were all like, oh, well, I, I guess that shows how welcome we are in science. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, I used to work in a daycare. Um, I'm back. Oh, gosh, this be more than 30 years ago. It was when I was in my teens. <clears throat> I used to work in a daycare. And I think I was the only man working there because I've always really enjoyed spending time with kids. And. For men, you know, there's a there's a policy in British Airways, I think it's been rescinded now, where a, a man can't be sat next to a child that's not his because he might be a pervert. And and well, if you say, well, I, I really want to go and teach kindergarten and you're a man, what kind of feedback do you think you're going to get? Because well, people are going to be like, oh, you're a man and you want to spend time around children? You must be a pedophile. Like, so the right. idea that a shirt is somehow barring women from going into science, but men face no barriers whatsoever to working with kids. I mean, anyway, I don't get off another rant about that. But, and, and what's this, what this has done is it's made it early child to this incredibly gynocentric universe where there's scarcely a man to be seen for the, 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 the men, the boys growing up with no dads, they're basically no dads. The daycare teachers are all women. The elementary school teachers are all women. And maybe by the time they get to the end of junior high school, they might actually find a male authority figure. And then the only people who are ever blamed for the world's problems are men. It's like, eh, 
Jupiter, how is it possible? It's like a female yeah. planet for the first like 15 years of your life. And um, uh, I think it's tragic. I think, you know, if we can get more men working in early childhood education, I think what a huge benefit that would be. But, of course, women only feel uh, – some women only feel sort of on the hard done by side of things and never think about what men are going through in terms of uh, our experience in society. Yeah, so many great points you make there. Um, the father archetype needs to make a, a comeback also in, in so many ways, be it biological father spending – Listen, the system is set up, and you know, here I go because I'm I'm ignorant as far as institutions are concerned. <laughs> but I decided I wasn't going to do it the way everybody does it, so I don't think everybody has to do it the way it's supposed to be done. But um, the amount of time that even a, a father who is there for his children actually gets to spend with his son and daughter is so so reduced based on the the, the way we choose to live our lives that. Uh, if you study the the work of Robert Bly and Robert Moore and you know these guys who are they're into symbology and mythology but with a male spin on it, uh, Robert Moore in, in in Iron John begins talking about how there becomes a distrust in, that grows in the boy for the father because he doesn't see what the father does. So the boy is is supposed to be attracted to and, and grow in the way that the pattern, the paternity, the father is, is moving. But because he's so far removed from it, there's a form of skepticism. There's a form of um, even uh, uh, how you would say like negativity projected towards the father, even though the father is a good father and he's, he's trying to be there and he's doing the things that he has to do. It's the time or the lack of time spent with the young growing pattern father child that um that really damages damages our growth as a as a, as a race of human beings well there's a study Robert recently um sorry to interrupt but there was a study recently that that uh, said that uh, the average father and this is the live-in father not even the remote father the average father with a son has 15 to 20 minutes a week of unstructured time oh, like 15 yeah. to 20 minutes a week imagine yeah. trying to learn guitar 15 to 20 minutes a week not even a day a week wow crazy yeah so the pattern has to get set somehow. You know, it's just so funny that word paternity and pattern and how the root is the same and the father sets the tone. He creates that pattern in the home. Not to say that the, the female can't, but for boys in particular, the, the boys, boys have two problems. You know, girls have one. Girl has to separate herself from her mother because she's growing up, you know, so she comes through the mother, but at some point she has to develop her own ego separate from the mother. The boy not only has to separate himself as an ego from the mother because, you know, that's his biological root and he needs to, to, you know, have his own ego construct. But he also has to battle against the sexuality, the issue that, boy, I'm not a woman, even though I came from a woman. You know, this is not an issue that, of course, this is all happening unconsciously, but not one that a, that a little girl has to deal with. So, um, so what end up, ends up happening in many ways, and I think this might be a part of the biological function and perhaps there's something we can do about it society, in, in society, but a part of the projection of shadow material goes against the feminine through the boy because he has to differentiate himself. Well, girls are, are this way and, and well, that's silly because I'm a boy. So, so th- th- we have to create some sort of contrast so that we can push the mother away so we don't get enveloped and swallowed by her sexuality and become – you know, more less masculine than our potential would allow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a huge problem as well, which is, I think, boys growing up these days, the, the way that we become men is through patterning ourselves 
over the elders. Now, a lot of times they're just basically not around. Uh, but also yeah. the question is for, for boys, do I want my father's life? Mm. Like looking at my father, do I want to live as he has lived? Like in Japan, the birth rate, I think, is down to 1.1. And there's a lot of asexual boys and, and uh, men and women who just don't get involved in it. Because I think a lot of the boys grew up in the you know 80s and 90s where the dads were gone 70 hours a week. They died from what was called karoshi or, or overwork. They were just never around. And so the boys grew up and they say, okay, so if I want to be like my dad, that means I get a life like my dad. Do I want the life my father had? And if the answer to that in society as a whole is no, you have a big, big problem with the young men in society uh, because they don't want to become the men that their fathers were. And of course, in my generation, growing up in the 70s, it was divorce. I mean, like 40 years ago, we basically just kicked back in a hammock and said, you know what, we don't need men to raise boys anymore. Let's just let the women do it. And uh, I mean, I think it's been pretty uh, unilaterally a disaster. But I was looking when I was growing up and said, do I want the life that my father has? Well, no, I don't. You know, get married, get divorced, pay alimony and, and, and child support. And I mean, God, what a terrible mess that was. And I think yeah. a lack of, you know, say, oh, a men should be role models, but society needs to give men the opportunity, and women, of course, we're just talking about men now, needs to give men the opportunity to live lives that their sons want. And I, right. I, I was friends <laughs> with, uh, good friends with a guy who worked for me back in the day. And uh, he was, I think about, I don't know, 12 or 13 years younger than me. And he wasn't dating that much. And I said, well, don't you ever want to get married? He's like, oh man, married. Are you kidding me? Just see these guys uh, slow, slow. You know, they're walking along. The 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 wives are walking quickly. They're sort of dragging a little behind, sloped shoulders, head staring out the sidewalk. <laughs> maybe carrying her purse. You know, it's like forget it. I don't want anything to do with that. And he, I think he was really talking about his own dad and and what had happened. Mm-hmm. And if there aren't men out there who are living a life that boys want, and I don't mean like rock star nonsense. I mean, that's all great. And if you want to do that, do it. But that's not particularly practical for a majority of people. Mm-hmm. But I just don't, I think we've got a whole, two generations now of a lot of boys growing up saying, who am I supposed to emulate? Who, who am I? And right. there's, now there's opportunities for redefinition and creativity in that. But I don't, I think we have to grieve that loss of role models. And the kids growing up could have the greatest generations in the past to look at and say, well, you know, these guys did a lot of heroic stuff. But now, what's your life as a dad going to be? I mean, you wake up, you, you you drop your kids off at daycare, you go to work, you come home, they may have, uh, you know, you got to give them baths, you got to cook their food. There's no quality time in any of that. And with, with homework, which has never been shown to add one Adam to anybody's intelligence or learning <laughs> capacities. You can fight with your kids about homework. The prevalence of sugar means you fight with your kids about sugar. Uh, you know, and I just don't think that there's enough gold at the end of the rainbow of maturity for guys to want to get engaged at that level. Yeah, you know, the the very first conversation we had about motivation. And what I said about, do you believe this to be a good world or a bad world? If you study NLP, they talk about, are you someone who's running towards something or running away from something? So I think we're in a good place. I think we're in a tremendous place. We're, we're in an awesome place because over the past 40 years, like you said, we are getting clearer and clearer about what we don't want. <laughs> right. And so breaking I'm having these- a first heart attack. Time to change my diet. Okay, go <laughs> Right. So we we recognize patterns that we're not we we don't approve of, you know, and I think 
my generation, and, and I'm even on the end of it, you know, or, or, you know, I'm sort of like older, but the generations coming up, knowing that we don't want the pattern that has been set, we now have access to various new patterns that are available to us through information like you provide and that I provide and the internet. You know, there's, there's more mentors to be, to be used, to be accessed than ever before for men in the history of mankind. I mean, it, there was a time when the only mentor was the shoemaker that you were going to end up having to be an apprentice for. I mean, that was it. It was that guy and your priest and your daddy. But now it's like, you take your pick. Who do, who do you want to decide to pattern yourself after? Who are you going to use as your mentor? And of course, it's virtual, but I think that we're also in a great place to rewrite our mythology. Right. And, and, and we have to write it with the, what, what we have access to in, in terms of communication and science. You know, and I use the term mythology because I, I genuinely do like religion in its mythological uh, positioning. I, I think the stories are so beautiful and they point to greater realities and they give us inspiration for, for ways of being that perhaps won't be accessible to us if we never see these symbols or hear these stories. Right. The thing is that, that it has to evolve. The story has to evolve with our evolution, the evolution of our consciousness, our technology and our, and our science. And, uh, and we're in a place where we can rewrite brand new mythologies for boys to engage in. You know, we watch movies like Star Wars that give you a mythology about what it will be when we're shooting stuff up in the sky and we're, and we have, you know, we're making our own planets and Death Stars and shit like that. But right now, why not create a mythology around becoming the strongest version of yourself through the ch- struggles of school and the empire you know the empire will always strike back we're always there uh, empire will always be there so what story can you tell yourself about navigating your way through the empire how do you what stories can you tell yourself about relationships and sexuality now you know the the old story especially the ones that were told through uh through um movies and whatnot is you know the hero he goes on his hero's journey and of course there's a hot chick there that always wants to have sex with him. Well, that's one story, one that probably won't happen to most of us, but can we come up with a story that allows working with our anima, the projection of our sexual, of our feminine on a woman and integrating her into our life, either through marriage or whatever union or, or lack thereof you just, you, you choose, you know, whatever relationship you choose to have with the feminine, uh, career and work, uh, also our education and our art, you know, so we, we have, the ability now, because of the breakdown, like I told you about my ego breakdown, to look at all the pieces, realize there are brand new pieces, and reconstruct something brand new. And I think over the next 100 years, that's what we're going to experience, is going to, is going to be the emergence of a brand new world mythology. And that, that's the way I'd like to think of it, you know, because it begins with, you know, tribal, egocentric, ethnocentric, uh, national. But now the mythology has to encompass the fact that you're in Canada, I'm in Florida, someone in New Zealand, someone in North Africa, someone in Asia is going to watch this right now. And it would be nice if we could all sort of come together with a, with a, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot saying this, but sort of a one world mythological order, not necessarily a political construct, but a story about who we are and where we're going that we could all be heroes, play our hero's journey part in. So I obviously hope that you will be returning to um, 
public media again at some point soon. Hopefully, you'll come back on when you decide to. We can announce it on a cross-channel promotion. But for those of who want to find out more about, you know, your thoughts and what you're up to, can you give us your web data so that people can find you easily? Sure. You know, I try to update every few weeks uh, with a blog post about what's going on at ElliotHulse.com, E-L-L-I-O-T-T-H-U-L-S-E.com. So, I mean, from there, you can find my videos, my Facebook and Instagram, various things of that sort. Fantastic. For Elliot's listeners, um, uh, I do uh, freedomainradio.com or you can go to youtube.com slash freedomainradio for philosophy um, uh, and books. They're all free uh, and uh, so on. So uh, obviously it was a huge pleasure to chat with you, Elliot. I, I wish you the very best. It's good to see you out the other side of the dark tunnel of reemergence. And um, uh, please keep us posted about your next move. And uh, we'd certainly, I'd certainly love to help uh, publicize whatever you're, you're up to next. Hey, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you reaching out. I appreciate your concern. And of course, I and everyone else who listens to your, your show appreciates all the information and ideas and entertainment that you provide us with. You're, man, you just, you're a robot. You just keep going. I love to see that you're, you keep making videos. They're always high quality. So, um, gratitude from me and everyone else. All for right. your work. Thanks, man. Take care. We'll talk again soon. You got it, bud. Bye.